Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that examines the shifting nature of identity. I'm your host, Roman Mars. All right, we just had to try that for a minute. <laughs> I'm actually your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. The New Disruptors is a proud member of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. Roman Mars is a public radio producer. But the definition of what public radio is has become malleable, especially with his show 99% Invisible, which has enormously more listeners to its podcast version than the broadcast flavor. The show is about design and architecture, and more particularly, about the inner workings of things we take for granted. Roman raised a significant sum on Kickstarter in July 2012 for season three of his show. It was $170,000. And uh, he's coming on to talk about the year past and the year ahead. Roman, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, 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 it's my pleasure. It's, uh, well, I was, I was a longtime listener before we met and, uh, and contributed to the Kickstarter because I thought it was a wonderful and crazy idea. And uh, you've come up through the public radio system. What was the reaction when you launched that Kickstarter uh, over a year ago as a way to fund a, a show that was kind of, you know, it was neither foul nor, uh, what do they call it, neither, neither Never fish nor foul. foul for people in the public radio side. I mean, the podcast side, we understood it, but in the public radio side, it was sort of a different beast. It was. I mean, I think part of what it what it did was, um, it, I mean, in a lot of ways, it made a lot of sense. It was really is a pledge drive model on Kickstarter. And so in many ways, it fit into exactly what they thought. The system is set up, though, such that shows don't fundraise directly, or they only recently started fundraising directly. The way that the system works is that the station gets funding through pledge drives, and then they commission work and uh, create the radio shows and put them on. And sometimes they go national and they get licensed to other radio stations, and that's how the system functions. Um, my show being a, a four and a half minute module on the radio, it's longer as a podcast, but it just it, it just didn't have that kind of traction. It had a big impact on KALW where we started and it's on three days a week or three times a week. And it probably has an outsized impact in proportion to its footprint, you know, on the on the on the air. So they were always really supportive in the beginning. They really put a lot of effort into it. But very quickly, I I needed to support the show in other ways. And um, and so I went to Kickstarter. And at first, I mean, I kept on hearing about it through other public radio people. So like uh, there'd be a conference right when the uh, there was a, you know, like a uh, developers conference. But in this case, it was uh, our development conference. In this case, it meant the people raising money for public radio. And I kept on hearing reports that people were talking about the show a lot because it was right when we were, you know, making um, good money and it was looking like it was sort of a groundbreaking uh, approach. And then I would get, um, you know, different sort of things from from stations, uh, you know, just asking me, you know, like, do you think it'd be right for this? Do you think it would be for us for this project and, and why? And sort of consultations on these things. And so they were kind of excited about the idea of raising money in this way. But I haven't seen them quite grab it in real innovative ways, um, except for um, Planet Money, mm-hmm. who, um, who, who did their pre-sales on their T-shirt, and they really treated it as pre-sales. It was not a fundraiser for Planet Money, exactly. But there was also other, other podcasts followed. Uh, Andrea Seabrook came right after I did, uh, Leah Tao, Strangers, uh, Hillary Frank's The Longest Shortest Time, 
and uh, and each of them have uh, have done well. The the thing that I uh, seemed to make the Kickstarter unusual was that you were making explicit things that are sometimes implicit. Like I'm not sure. Uh, public radio listeners don't quite understand, I think, always, even though in the pledge breaks we're told again and again, um, where the money goes and comes from. And uh, we know that there's underwriting, but the difference between underwriting for a station, for a show, for a national show and a local show, it's it's kind of confusing from the outside. And I expect loyalties follow a show. I mean, there are stations that are beloved, of course, and I love KUOW in, mm-hmm. in Seattle, but uh, and KALW, uh, you're on it. You know, the, these stations people love specifically. But it, it, do you see that as there a loyalty to a program versus, say, national public radio, PRI, or a station? I think I think most people uh, are attached to the program. That that's my gut instinct. I think that the really good stations have the personality to have them be as beloved as uh, a program would be as well. So I think that the the stations that will survive the the tumult of having. Uh, distribution really change in the next few years are the ones that have the lovability of a program, the personality of a program that create things and are the things that you want to give to. The ones that are the repeaters of the national content, the ones that don't have a local personality, I think they're going to suffer. So uh, so yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting time. I think that the way you're going to, anyone's going to survive is to make things because distribution just means less and less. That's where we keep coming back to on this podcast in particular. And it's something I hear, I feel like everywhere is that the the old distributors of any kind of media uh, used to be a heavy infrastructure cost, right? A radio station, they have enormous expense to make it happen. Engineers, uh, they need to be broadcasting 24 hours a day in most markets. They have to have towers and so forth. Um, you just need a portable recorder and, a, and a, some bandwidth. Yeah. I mean, you have to figure out a way to cut through the noise somehow. And in many ways, that's unfair. And I've been really lucky. Like my association with public radio, even though the podcast is more popular, if it wasn't for my association with public radio, I don't know if I would have made it in the beginning. So if I didn't have, you know, people who knew me at Radiolab, which was most people's first exposure to me, if I didn't have the, you know, the money from from KLW to start and to have a, a place to, you know, distribute on the air. And if I didn't have PRX to kind of make the money flow smoothly, because it's not a very good business model making media most of the time. <laughs> so, so like if it wasn't for them to send out checks before I got other checks, I, I probably wouldn't have survived this long either. So, you know, I'm, I've been lucky to take, the good things from more traditional media from the more innovative you know makers and and then uh explore the 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 newer ways of of reaching people and and being sort of uh unmoored from from the sort of the traditional models which which holds you back because the main part that that holds you back is the fact that radio stations want to pay less and less for content i mean for the most part they want it for free mm-hmm. and if you are a maker of things and you have two customers you have one that doesn't want to pay for things and another who is just <laughs> hankering to pay for things i mean really really happy to pay for things excited to pay for things then you you know like just to be a, a smart 
you know, manufacturer. You make the thing for the customer who who wants to pay for things. And so it's been it's been fun to try to figure out what that balance is all about. I should back up and, and we should talk about what the podcast is. I sort of assume people know it. 99% Invisible, I think a bit like Radiolab, is kind of the podcast of the internet. Like it's it's in the same way, it's the thing that dives beneath the surface. And uh, I don't know that I know anybody – well, who doesn't know your podcast because it it's that little you I'll tell a story before you tell about your podcast because I had this itch I wanted to scratch for years and years after seeing some Looney Tune episodes while I was in a house in Taos, New Mexico. I blogged about this and uh, mm-hmm. I was confused. It was a Bugs Bunny, um, Yosemite Sam one. And I'm in this Adobe style, you know, New Mexico style house, which is kind of a fake thing too if you read the history of it. There weren't really <laughs> – there's, there's some books about that. But this sort of – you know, that stereotypical thing with the logs coming out the end and the, the floors. And I'm watching this Bugs Bunny episode and they are running through a house that looks like that. And the landscape is a landscape in Taos. And I'm thinking, what, there were in Hollywood. What is this all about? And then, of course, years, because this is a decade ago, years go by and I'm listening to 99% Invisible one day and you have this wonderful piece about <laughs> this fellow, Maurice Noble, who did the backgrounds for Looney Tunes and he researched impeccably and his backgrounds, however stylized, were accurate to the place. And I thought, all right, that was an itch I didn't even know could ever be scratched. And scratched. So, so – that to me is the quintessential 99% invisible experience. But what, what, where did the show come from? Now that you're three years in, how did you bring this thing out of your mind and into existence? Well, it, it really started as an idea from other people. So Margie O'Driscoll, who's the executive director of the American Institute of Architects in San Francisco, and Matt Martin of KLW, they had thought, well, maybe it'd be nice to have this little architecture minute, like a little factoid or story about a San Francisco building that they could put into the local presentation of Morning Edition. And so Matt and I are friends and I've worked with KLW, you know, my entire professional life. Even when I was at WBEZ in Chicago, I still like would uh, come on an ISDN and do the pledge drive with KLW. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he just sort of said, well, what do you think of that? And he's like, I have this idea that it should live on a bit more as a blog and a discussion about the built world. And uh, I was really excited about the idea of it. And what happened was, I mean, I had plenty of other work at the time and I wasn't sure I could do it. But I kept on being more and more intrigued by the people I was talking to about these things as subjects. And I had some interest in architecture and uh, and design. I wouldn't say uh, I didn't have any sort of expertise of any kind. But I just had an interest in the type of stories where you explain things like this. Explainers, evergreen explainers are like my favorite form of journalism. And after talking to everybody, rather than do what I would normally do in this situation, which is kind of create the show, sound design the show, and then hand it off for someone else to do. I thought this is my chance (laughs) to go be a a host again because I hadn't really hosted in a long, long time. And I thought that I could work on my writing and I could work on my storytelling and do the type of, of work I really, really like, which is often stuff about, you know, pieces about um, boring things. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm like a horrible freelancer because I can never convince an editor oh that what I'm doing is interesting. <laughs> I only can like, I'm, I'm only like, well, just trust me. And when it comes together, it'll sound good, which is not something you can actually tell an editor. And so 
Uh, I just needed to create my own show for that reason. And I just was convinced, and it was a lot of it was the name. When I, I, I gathered this group of of uh, designers, or the AIA actually did for me, and I, they invited folks, and we sat around a table, and I was trying to get the title of the show and trying to figure out, well, what was it that is the thing that unifies this landscape architect and this industrial designer and this engineer and doesn't use the word design. Cause for some reason I just, I hadn't, I mean, I think probably for an obvious reason, but I didn't want to use the word design. I thought it was overused and I didn't like it in this context. I wanted to make it more, um, more about an idea. And Gary Strang, a landscape architect pulled out Bruce Mao's book um, called Massive Change. And he mentioned this line about the 99% invisible activity that shapes the world. And, and this whole idea that 99% of who you are is invisible and untouchable. And I thought, well, and, and, and the, those quotes are from uh, Bucky Fuller in the um, intro to this book. And so, and that's when it clicked for me. I felt like I could talk about anything. I could use design as a lens to talk about anything. If I was thinking about what is the 99% of the story that isn't represented in the object itself? What, what is all the thought behind it? What is all the sort of genius behind it? And that was a story. That was a show I knew I could do for a really long time. Like that, that's where my interest lies. It's structure, design, uh, infrastructure, process, ways of thinking. It's, it's, you've got all these different pieces that come together that aren't, it's not like here's how an architect built something. One of your recent episodes about the concrete bubble buildings mm-hmm. was – I mean that was about society and, the, and then the interviews with people who lived inside these weird buildings and how they felt the social opprobrium mm-hmm. and, and it's like the consequences. You almost do programs about the consequences or outcomes of decisions that were made. Yeah. I mean I think that's the most interesting to me. Like I – I never feel a need to interview the expert. I just want someone who is affected by the built world in some way. And so sometimes it's an expert and sometimes it is the architect. But I've done whole pieces and people have written me about how I could possibly do a whole piece about the Transamerica Pyramid and not <laughs> not mention William Pereira, who, who was the architect. And so, But it, it, it made complete sense to me because the story wasn't about him. The story was about how we, as a, the Bay Area, viewed the Transamerica Pyramid. And, and he was kind of irrelevant to that story. That gets into the deconstructionism uh, of things, too, is a uh, you know, popular movement decades ago, still prevalent. That idea of where the author sits in relationship to the work is, you know, is the author of the work. You have to take his or her account into it. Or can you actually look at what it says and does? Right. I mean, in my case, I, I think that sometimes the story is about their intent and sometimes it isn't. And so I, I never really know until I get into the story and, and find what's interesting to me. So Eric Molinsky, who did that Maurice Noble piece, you know, he brought that to me and it was like, I think it might have been the third one. And he was not really convinced it was um, a story for us. And uh, he had these other ones that he, he was certain were primary. But I had this idea of like, what if we could tell, teach people how to read a Warner Brothers mm-hmm. cartoon? And that was the thing that was most intrigued. And so like he would tell, he, we started with the story in a certain way. And, uh, and it was about the, you know, Maurice Noble and his conflict with 
Chuck Jones and, and all these sort of details that are the, the nice biographical details that are part of it. But I really wanted was like, what do you see in all cartoons that are the that are Maurice Nobleisms? And and I wanted a new I wanted people to view the world in a new way. And that's what I I've settled on over the past three years is what the big idea of the show is is giving people like a new way to view and appreciate the world, which is a shockingly optimistic point of view. <laughs> I mean, it's not my natural point of view. And, and it, the, so the show has changed me dramatically that um, I've, be, I've kind of become this person who appreciates things in, in a way that I don't know if I was naturally wired to be, but I've, but I've developed into that. The, the character of the host of the show has become me. You know, there are people like that that are natural. Oh like I hung out with um, Alexis Madrigal recently. And like, I feel like he's the person I pretend to be. Like he's naturally the person I pretend to be. Like you'll go into his house and it's like, it's like there's these projectors and these, you know, like, and these um, floppy, you know, like flexi discs that he collects. And he's like, he's just one of these people that's endlessly curious and, and works, you know, like, and, and I feel like I'm much more naturally um, not like that. And I, and I work towards that, like that, that I, I want to be a person who sits around and appreciates and, and, and sees the world. And, and so I'm developing into that person as the show is developing as a listener, I think I would state what you said as, uh, you, you take something that I've been looking at every day and I thought I understood and you tell me what's really going on in there in a way that I've never seen. So it's, you know, like the Maurice Noble as an example, but there's so many things where, um, I mean, it is the beneath the surface thing is the obvious part, but it's more like I could walk by something every day of my life and not, even if I have the curiosity, not necessarily get an answer, and you're out there getting answers. For instance, there's I think there's two good ones from a recent uh, recent year. The Trading Places. You actually work with Planet <laughs> Money to explain the end of Trading Places, and I thought, and I actually understand it now. I've watched that movie a bunch of times, and it, I I had no idea a it was that accurate, and b how complicated and how well the story they told. The other was the red line and the the death in, in Los Angeles, the plot line of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and picking apart the truth, the layers of truth and lies there that we were told one thing and they were told, no, it was the oil company. Well, it wasn't really the oil It was the inevitability. It's like, you know, what ended slavery? I don't know. Maybe you can't, you'll do that one one day. It's like the <laughs> interplay of dynamic forces where somebody wants a pat answer and you're often saying, well, there isn't a pat answer. There are answers, but we have to keep peeling that onion. You know, 99% invisible is, it's not that there's 1% we see and 99% we don't. It's that that 99% is a layer that you have to keep taking away, away, away. Yeah. I mean, the shows don't often come to a conclusion. I mean, that's that's just my nature is that I'm, I don't know, just maybe ambivalent is too pejorative. But I, I, I kind of feel like there's a lot of things about design that are um, they're gives and takes, you know, like you know, we do, we did a piece about cul-de-sacs and they're, you know, they're demonstrably bad for urban design. You know, they, they really, they really are. But the people who choose to live in them, they're not morons. They're choosing a certain thing. They're choosing that a, a place where the kids can go out and run in the street and they have cars anyway, because they don't really care. They don't want to buy into public transportation. Public transportation doesn't probably reach them or isn't maybe reliable enough in their community. And so I'm really interested in those design conundrums where 
that smart, well-intentioned people, designers, are uh, trying to make things better. If we all bought in, it, you're right, it would be better. But there's, you know, everyone has agency and, you know, good design, like yielding to good design, that, that is this acquiescence of, of will. You know, you have to sublimate will to, to, to kind of succumb to good design, which is one of the reasons why, you know, real, you know, computer people love their endlessly modifiable uh linux setups or you know or you know and uh and sometimes they really hate macs and because it's a different type of paradigm and you can see the point of both of them you know if you have a certain skill set or you don't or you just like to for some people to think through the problem for you and and but it does require you to kind of like go okay yeah i'm gonna Right. I'm supposed to put this here and now everything makes sense. And so I'm really interested in that, the the give and take of design. So with a, a show idea that you found, uh, you know, as individual pieces, you found hard to pitch to producers, you come up with your own show. How did you get the thing funded originally to launch the, the first two seasons? Were you at Public Radio Exchange at PRX already? Yeah. I mean, the fundamental way I paid for it was I had another job. I mean, that's, that's like, that's the clearest way that it was funded. Uh, I had another job with PRX creating and hosting their PRX remix channel. And so it was a good, flexible job. I was able to listen to material. I basically program a, a 24-hour stream of radio stories. Well, we should explain what PRX, where do they fit in that public radio um, ecosystem? So PRX is is strange because they are... Uh, kind of the they're a distributor of content in a traditional sense but they're also a open platform for people to self-distribute their public radio stories and to stations and they're also like the creator of new technologies for public radio so they create the apps for this american life and radio lab and other stations and also the platforms that are going to be the new APIs for all public radio content and all these things that they do. They're kind of like this amazingly just innovative R&D department for public media, even though they're their, they're their own company. Because most um, public radio stations don't have, I mean, they used to maybe have more resources. I know that's that continues to be an ongoing issue, but they don't have the resources to develop uh, even less of the biggest uh, stations or, or public radio networks to or, with public TV and so forth, they don't have the resources to do the level of R and D and forward thinking that PRX is trying to bring to the to them. Exactly. So they partner with stations. They're very good. What what I love about them is they are um, they're very good players with everybody because they're trying to occupy this sort of middle space between everybody. So they work with NPR and APM and PRI and the stations and various other folks. They're not direct competitors. They're trying to work around. And then sometimes they do make things that are direct competitors because obviously if you create a show, like their their most popular show is the Moth Radio Hour, for oh, example. Yeah, yeah. And so like that show, you know, like its existence on a radio station takes away – spot from another radio show so which is made by somebody else so in that sense they they are competitors but the way they operate is totally different in so many respects that they're just really well respected in the system and and i i'm totally honored to sort of be associated with them in, in every way i can and and i just like the way they do things they're, they're just smart 
smart people. And there's like only 10 of them. <laughs> <laughs> and when you compare that to, to something like NPR, it's they're what they do is really amazing. But I, I think that maybe we could explicate the ecosystem a little more too, because I realize this is one of the big mysteries to people outside of radio. And I did a lot of work at uh, KUOW. I uh, was a regular guest on a show for three uh, years and, uh, you know, still going occasionally. And I learned a lot about things that as a listener, I was always curious about, you know, how does this mechanism work? Because they've got so much time to fill. And, you know, we were talking earlier about there. I mean, there's programs that are national programs like a Prairie Home Companion or Car Talk and Car Talk being an interesting example we can talk about later about what it's become. <laughs> but there's those big shows that everyone listens to that are the big mainstays for fundraising and listenership and so forth. There's locally produced programs. And then there's that kind of nebulous area of programs that or segments that don't come from locally produced stations. They aren't a show that's produced or co-produced by multiple stations. And there's not from a national network. And that's where PRX fits in, right? Is that they're almost a provider of material that isn't either at a national or local level. Or I mean, it could be also, but it doesn't have to be. It, I mean, it is. It's kind of – PRX is an open platform. So like a lot of nationals use it. So this – and so like Sound Opinions is a national show from – that's a co-production WBEZ. Or I say it's produced by WBEZ and distributed by PRX. So they're distributed by, by PRX. The Moth is a production – a co-production with PRX and The Moth and, and is put out in, in Atlantic Public Media. And so, you know, they're kind of – what's – great about them is they never conceive of one way to make something <laughs> they're always kind of working different ways and so but as an independent producer if you have no connections with anyone whatsoever you can sign up for a prx account put your work on it and it's it was meant to solve the problem the sort of backbone of prx the original sort of idea of prx is that in the 90s you were an independent producer and you had to send a CD to 400 radio stations. Oh my gosh, right, right. And it was about like, so, okay, we have this thing called the internet now and we're going to allow you to put it there. Um, a station is a member of PRX and then they license the work and you don't have to renegotiate it. You don't have to worry about it. And uh, they'll just download the MP2, which is sort of the broadcast standard um, compression as an MP2. And then they can have it. And in many respects, that works really well. I mean, that it's an extremely important part of it. The problem with it in the broad scale is that station managers are not the most active people sometimes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's so much easier to kind of turn on the feed, not really curate your station with a really, you know, like with real diligence and intelligence. And so there's these tools out there, but you require the stations to be active to be a part of mm-hmm. it. And so there's a, there's a few stations that are really stellar, you know, like they're really active and they really think about this stuff. KUOW is one of them, quite honestly. Like they really think about their broadcast clock. They really think about how they program things. They really run numbers. And, they, you know, like Jeff Hansen thinks like a program, mm-hmm. not like a producer. And it's really interesting what he's done with that station. I don't know if I always love all the decisions, but I love that he makes a decision <laughs> and and that it's it's about creating the greatest sort of radio resource for the community there. And in that sense, I think that 
I think he's like a champion. I think he's amazing. Yeah, he's not. They're not afraid to do uh, like they have. I don't want to say it's a mishmash, but they. Uh, I don't know what you call it. Like they, they have a showcase right. where they're taking stuff from PRX, they're taking local stuff, they're taking national stuff, and they produce something that's different every day. That is like a curated kind of thing, and, and the content it doesn't all have to be created in house. They don't have an ownership of that. They do have programs that they do entirely in house, usually live, usually and often involving a call in or, or local guests that have a very very strong local content. But they're not afraid to bring in stuff from outside that fits into the mission of what kind of stories they want to tell. Right, and they and they've designed it in such a way that it's about radio listening. It's about a stream. It's about the fact that people only listen for ten minutes at a time. It's sort of designing something based on the actual use case, which is something that designers should do. You know, and people don't get that 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 is people think of public radio as a unit, especially if you're used to now consuming in the podcast part, the broadcasting side. Is that people turn it on and off, and and once mm-hmm. they got it was a few years ago. I remember talking to the folks there after they got those more accurate radio uh, listening things that people would carry around with them, and they're right, able right. to track. I forgot what those are called, but they're able to track actually what people were doing as opposed to what they would write in a logbook. And pe- exactly. people would write down, I listened to the entire hour of uh, This American Life from start to finish. And in reality, they listened to seven minutes of it. Yeah, I mean, it really did change things, and a lot of people didn't really take any of that information and do anything with it. Um, it's hard. This is the money ball problem, right? Yeah. You know, I, we're running an article in the cur- – it will already be out by the time this episode goes up. It's 10 years after Moneyball and how baseball – still parts of baseball refuse to accept the fact that statistical analysis is a valid tool for buying players and running a team. And it, and you're saying that same thing. It's hard when someone gives you hard numbers, you have an intuitive sense of what you want. The numbers contradict that. Not everyone wants to buy into that because then they feel like they're abrogating their aesthetic or, or, or commercial decision-making to just something that seems arbitrary to them, even if it's accurate. And, and like most things, I think that the right solution is a balance between the two. So like, I believe that art is about comfort and challenge. And so when Jeff Hansen of KOW says things should be only under 10 minutes because that's the way people use it, and I, I would say, then you should make everything 11. <laughs> <laughs> but you can – this is the wonderful thing. This is where we sort of break it apart, right? Is PRX unbounds you and stations and producers from necessarily having to conform to the limits of a given station, uh, and I mean, and one of the examples is that you have a, a podcast version of your show and then you have a version designed specifically to fit into format requirements of stations. Right. In terms of length, at least. And I mean, it really started that way. I mean, it was really meant to be the four and a half minute show. And in the first 13 episodes are that only. And you got funding. I should ask that I sort of oh, yeah. walked over that, but you'd gotten from the American Institute of Architecture and KALW and PRX were all supportive of this when you, when you got your plan together, uh, well over three years ago now. You... Not quite like that, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> tell, tell me the accurate story. Yeah. So uh, KLW gave me the space and time, you know, like putting it on the air. AIA really just collected the people and hooked me up with the resources. So ah. I've never gotten a dime from the AIA. Okay. They're, they're not a uh, funding partner. And what they did was they had this uh, person, uh, or actually John Edson at Lunar, which is an industrial design firm that had been kind of, you know, like involved in a lot of stuff at the AIA San Francisco was, was kind of came to them and said, what can we be involved with? That's interesting. Mm. And so they lunar ended up funding the pilot run and uh, a good portion of the, 
next year, like the after the 13 episodes. And then KLW, when that money ran out, KLW floated me for the period of time until I was able to raise the money from the Kickstarter. So in a way it's, it's just was this, was this mix. So like I, 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 but when I was trying to raise the money on my own through Kickstarter, all that stuff went away. Like I, so I don't take money from KLW anymore. Mm. They get the show for free. AIA has never paid for the show. They're just associated because they really brought the idea and, and were a part of it. And PRX is my distributor, and so they actually get a percentage of what I earn. So, like, they made money on the show. <laughs> so, but if I didn't have those pieces, you know, if I didn't have the the mass of PRX to help fund things before things had the money to do it, or uh, KLW to bridge between the private funding and the crowdfunding, and uh, Lunar to have faith in something that didn't exist yet. I mean, they had no idea what it was going to be like. They had no concept of my work. And uh, just thought that the idea of people knowing more about design was good for them. Mm-hmm. You know, if I didn't have those things, then the show wouldn't exist. So all those are really key uh, partners in this. But eventually, to make it grow beyond the idea of what public radio tends to have kind of limited scope for things, I had to take it independent, which was what it took to do the, um, the Kickstarter. Well, it's it's part of the when you talk about scope is uh, it, when it was a four and a half minute show. Right. I mean, I know right. that there's that uh, that issue about you know the shorter something is, the more time it can take to produce. Of course, too, right? Is that <laughs> you know it might be easier to produce a twenty minute show than a four and a half minute show because you have to go back and it's true for writing. There's the old joke about writing is I wrote four thousand words and if I'd had more time I would have written three thousand words. And it's <laughs> right, true right, in any right. creative endeavor in which you have you know so, something about attention and scarcity. But so making a four and a half minute show is one thing. You, I know, uh, I actually know the point where you sort of split that apart, where you said we can have this, but we can have a longer version um, or a version that's unbounded by that constraint. It doesn't have to be bounded by the constraint. That's a podcast version. Where did that come in the first two seasons? It really came after the the first see the pilot season was only thirteen episodes. So what I what I call the second season was the part where I started hearing from folks who said I love the show, but the you know the the act of dialing it up and playing it and having it only last five minutes is it just doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. It's not made to be a podcast in that way, and I didn't have a lot of experience with short podcasts, so I didn't know if they were right exactly you know um, now i've actually seen it more and i was like oh yeah that actually is not the ideal case you know is to have four and a half minutes so i knew that it was pretty easy for me to lock the show like at about you know seven or eight minutes and because that's where i was you know if i shoot for four and a half minutes i usually create something that's about six or seven Mm. and then i have to pare down it's really really hard and so i would just stop at that point kind of save it and then whittle it down some more and release that one on the radio and then i'd release that that first version that i stopped at as the podcast version and then over time i began realizing that i was producing the long version (laughs) in my head first you know what i mean and it wasn't the short version that i was shooting for and so the creation of the two different forms uh, becomes much harder for that because if you're not designing for a four and a half minute story you you often like there's some episodes that i've done that have never created a four and a half minute version yeah. I, I just don't even know how to crack it it doesn't make sense but some of them 
they actually work pretty well. And they often work well, or they work better when I just choose one aspect of the more sprawling story and and go for it. So in the episode with uh, Jesse Dukes uh, produced for us um, called The Modern Moloch about the rise of, of car culture oh, yeah. in America and how it how it kind of destroyed pedestrian culture in the streets. It was a big piece. It's, you know, it's like 25 minutes long. It has a lot of different aspects in history and how the fortune and our opinion of cars have changed over time. But the four and a half minute version is just about the term jaywalking and how jaywalking was invented. (laughs) And it's just, it's a nice little simple story about a PR campaign to make the fault of car accidents of, of cars hitting pedestrians the pedestrians fault and it worked it, like in a way there are certain ones like that one and i think that's the maurice noble one and there's certain ones where they just kind of like they're nice smaller stories and they work on the radio but sometimes it's just a real real struggle and um and i often sort of uh you know like have conflict about you know just i i don't know if doing the radio version makes a ton of sense. Um, it's too inexplicable to people. Like they can't, you can't get enough of the thread in it to explain why someone should listen. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to have it on the radio. I just don't know if I can turn, if radio listeners, if there's no money in the radio aspect of it, then, and I can't turn radio listeners into podcast listeners. What is it? You know, why do it if I have limited resources? And what I often come back to is the fact that I just love public radio <laughs> so much that I have a hard time letting go of it. And I kind of do like the challenge of the of the radio version, but it's just something I, I do revisit this idea a lot. And also, I feel really beholden to KALW, who uh, created this thing um, for their air. And I mean, now there's maybe a, a few more that take it, you know, WBEZ plays it uh, regularly and WFYI and Indianapolis and Vermont public radio plays it and uh, Pittsburgh plays it and Louisville. So, uh, you know, like I'm, I love, I love the fact that they have taken a chance on this sort of odd thing and put it on their air and want to keep that going. But it's when you have limited resources, it's really hard. And I think that there are going to be times when unlike the normal version, which is to create a long version and maybe I can't cut it down, that the way to produce the show better in all aspects is actually to create short versions that might not ever be big enough to be long versions, you know, that are quick hit, uh, interesting little stories that might not be bigger stories. And I've been telling these stories a little bit more on the podcast. I've been doing like two story versions. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's my sort of way to pilot this idea that there might be just four minute stories that really just can't hold the weight of any more than that. They're really, they're four minutes only. You seem to be plotting the divergence between that, um, between the, like the mobile listener and the, and the radio listener that like the mobile commuter listener is a different person. And maybe, you know, the, the radio listener, we have that thing, right? You get in the car and you drive for seven minutes and you listen to the one piece or maybe 10 minutes and then you're off. The commuter listener is what I think drives podcasts as you've got – I can't remember how many – is it 40 million people? There's some enormous number of people in just America who commute 
I forget what it, you know, an hour each way every day or more. So you have this big amount right. of time. Those are the people who buy Kindles and they buy iPads and they have, they were smartphone <laughs> adopters and especially happy when the network got there and they're podcast listeners and the ease of getting content onto mobile devices, the lower costs of bandwidth or availability of high speed bandwidth makes it all possible. It seems like there's a divergence between those two categories. The one who wants the radio wants four and a half minutes because they know that's a jolt for a listener turning it out. But your folks who are mobile, they don't want to change a podcast at four and a half minutes, and they're going to run through your four and a half minute podcast pretty fast. Yeah, they 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 are very different. The habit is very different, and if they've invested in the time to download and sync and you know press play, and and they do not want to have to do that four and a half minutes later for the next thing, and so you know, so I make the show in many ways just for them. Uh, I still make the show. What I what I love about that format though is um, I have spent a ridiculous amount of my time as a radio producer cutting things to fit time or filling things to make time. And I love that the stories dictate to me how long they should be. And that is just, it's a I mean, it just changes the way you create things. And I love it. I mean, I have to, the problem with it is that I think I personally had to go through the dozen years of work to recognize what the right length of a piece was, mm. which is, I think, part of the what you hear when you hear a normal podcast and it goes on too long. It is people that haven't been through the paces of knowing that editing process in themselves. Well, this is that thing of having outside people to respond to. I, you know, I go through this with the, what's the difference between a blog and a, I don't know, content site or a professional content site. For me, it's often whether something's been edited or not and, and even mm -hmm. copy edited. And I find that's, you know, as I've gone through all these different waves of you know, writing for publications like The Economist where multiple eyes see it and they have a very, very high pitch of what they want to writing my own blog and everything in between there is such a value of having another set of eyes, even if you disagree with them about the changes you want to make. You've had an audience of people to serve for much of your career where your audience wasn't the end listener. It was the, the station producers or people you worked with or, or so forth. Do you think that's shaped you in a different way than someone coming up today who might just be going straight to podcasts and directly to end users? I do. I, I think that just out of necessity, I've had to serve as my own editor most of the time. And I don't think I'd be a very good one had I not been through the professional experience of editing. Um, You're forced to make decisions you didn't necessarily want to make sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think that constraint makes you better. I think that, you know, the, the idea that radio is not about, uh, the the formatting of radio is not like a novel where you build to something and and reveal something great in radio if you're listening to this american life they think you might not agree but they think that the best grabbiest story is the first one they're not saving it for the end <laughs> the, 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 you front load radio yeah. because yeah. you don't know when you're going to catch them and what you want to do is catch them early and keep the the idea of the story going you know and so if you think of that in radio and, and you create a podcast based on sort of some of the radio aesthetics, there's a, I think there's a reason why public radio in particular dominates a lot of the podcast rankings because there's a certain uh, adherence to craft 
which is appreciated. And collaboration, uh, I mean, I know that even though, well, you know, you say you've been your own editor, but you've always worked in teams. You have an editor you work with now. This is the foreshadowing of the consequences of the Kickstarter. We'll start foreshadowing mm-hmm. the future here as we talk about what what's coming to, to fruition here again. Uh, but collaboration to me is such a key, important thing. Like I, I understand people who have a unified singular vision and I know you have one and I'm sure I have – I, of course I have one also about um, the editorial direction of the magazine as a specific thing, what I want to appear in there and the standards by which I hold it. But I love working with other people. I love bringing in – you bring in outside producers. You talk to them. Then you hand off to them and they talk about what they found. And they talk to – they interview people. It's this kind of interleaved thing on the show that I'm sure plays mm-hmm. out in real life as well where there's a sum total that's better because of how you take your singular vision and shape it in collaboration as opposed to taking an undigested <laughs> version maybe of what you think and sticking it on the air. Totally. The show wouldn't exist without the other reporters or the show wouldn't be better. I mean, the, the show is made much, much better by the addition of Sam Greenspan, who's the producer of the show. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain way that their job is to be a reporter and they're kind of the expert because they've done a lot of the interviews. And then my job is to turn their story into my show. Mm-hmm. And And I think in the end, it comes out better. Like I'm particularly proud of the fact that reporters, I think, do their best work on my show. And it's not that I'm editing them in such a way as to make them better. It's a little bit that they're free to do what they want to. I think that the the type of show it is allows them to ask certain questions in a way that they haven't been able to do before. And this this freedom to kind of be themselves. So often in the beginning in particular, they would turn in a piece that would strip out their personality because they've been kind of trained to be a certain type of reporter. And I always wanted their feeling about what they were doing in there. And all the asides that you have when you have these editorial meetings with folks, the type of little things that you say – responding to tape or, or, or the story and how it makes you feel. I wanted all those things back in. And uh, now they kind of know that a little bit more. They know I want those things. I didn't, I didn't realize that I turned the ma- the magazine, how derivative it was from 99% Invisible. As you discussed it, I think that is a wonderful goal when you're working on something like that. Then you're bringing in other people and you want their voice to come through that you don't want to have – the uh, when I worked for the New York Times, that was earlier in my reporting career, and it was harder for me to steamroll. I always talked about the meat grinder of the New York Times, and it was it's a really good, high quality meat grinder. They clean it, it's got really great <laughs> blades, very sharp. But there was a style which had slipped. It is much more personal. Even the news stories in the New York Times, I think now, but in the late '90s, there was a very particular thing, you know, and you had to adhere to that because there was a voice of the publication and a voice of objective news. And part of what has changed in culture, I think, is our desire for the subjective personal voice that we know affects all objective things, that we know all objective measures mm-hmm. are shaded by, to have that actually appear. And you do that explicitly. That's part of the charm of the show is that you want to talk about how our perceptions are wrong. Someone remembers something and they remember it wrong and you'll talk about that on the show. That You went back or someone – one of your producers or reporters went back and they – oh, you know, this isn't what I remembered. Mm-hmm. And you talk about both sides. You don't just erase the part where you remembered it wrong. Yeah, I, I, I love all that 
stuff. I love that mess of it. And one of the things that's great about the design of the show is it allows me to fix and tweak because we're kind of co-presenting the story that it can evolve really, really easily. So if I have an opinion about something like in the Bubble Houses episode where, you know, David Weinberg uses the word uh, star architect. And, um, <laughs> yes. and this is like in the, in the, in the architecture press, this is a really loaded term, you know, and, but David doesn't know that he doesn't follow the architecture press. Like I follow it, you know, but so, you know, I give a little aside about what this means to, to use the word star architect. And so that is what the show is about. It's about that interplay. In the end, I feel like I get way too much credit for the show being good. Like I'm happy that I've set the stage so that these reporters are doing their best work, but I often, I feel like I get too much credit. The only reason why that I I feel okay about that is for years I was a producer and I got way less credit than I deserved. (laughs) This is the balancing, this is the balancing time. I want to talk about a piece of credit that you, that you did get too, because I think, you know, so this is the shape of the show as it evolved. And then you take the big step and we talked at the outset, you know, about, your first Kickstarter. And again, I'm going to foreshadow because I'm going to use the term first since uh, <laughs> we know something else is coming. But hinting at it a little bit here. But your first yeah. Kickstarter, you produced two seasons. You're getting towards the end of the second season. Um, I believe, if I remember right, what you told me at the time, you were sleeping on average of like nothing a night. You know, for, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty first bad. Season. That was a problem. You're actually part of your life work balance involved having the like the life part, I imagine. At the end of season two. Yeah. I mean, it, it was really tough. I don't know if things have gotten all that much better, quite honestly, but it was hard. It was my nighttime job. Luckily, the PRX job was flexible enough that I could get away with doing stuff during the daytime, but I still, I owed them time, you know, to do the work and, and my other work for Remix. And and so I had to be really fair about that. And it, and it was really tough because at what's, what's great and intoxicating about people enjoying your work is that it's a lot easier to produce for people who are really happy with the things you're putting out. But it doesn't mean that there's an endless well that you can draw from all the time. And so uh, it was getting hard. But it was hard. What was really hard to figure out was because I'd been so used to working on my own that I couldn't figure out how to make the show, to produce the show better or smarter. And the first Kickstarter was a little bit about figuring that out, you know, like how to pay people, how to offload some of the work and how to focus on some of the things that I didn't care about, but I knew were important. Like if like the website, for example, (laughs) your your earlier website was, was extremely functional in its way, but yeah, it did its job in a certain way. And my view of that job was you could post the sound to it. (laughs) (laughs) And so but quickly when you know we had the kickstarter and it was exceeding expectations and i knew i could get more of sam greenspan's time and hire him to be the producer um he just he just just naturally thought well the website has to be i mean the posts have to be better yeah. even when the website wasn't better yeah. the posts have to be better the posts have to deliver something that's independent and richer than the radio show and i i honestly i just I kind of still don't care a whole lot. It's it's not my primary interest. Right. 
And, and it's, it's not that I'm disdainful of that. I just have, there's like, I have a limit of things I can care about and, (laughs) and I really, really care about the audio. And so, and I'm super happy when it happens. But so now at this point, Sam just takes over the build out. We, you know, like he just does it all day when I'm finishing up the thing, he's just collecting material and writing and taking the script and turning it into prose. And he just takes care of it. And it's amazing how much better all that stuff is. And then getting a real website where you can search for it and, and, you know, go through it was another big aspect of the Kickstarter, which I couldn't do otherwise, you know, cause I, but that was part of your thing is you said had some, you know, you know, a high, like I want to say both modest, but not ridiculous goal. Uh, you know, $42,000 is a lot of money. And God knows when you launched the thing, if you thought you could reach it, you had high hopes. I was terrified. I thought we could just make it, but that last little bit, it was like, it was 30,000 to pay, most of the reporters and a little bit of my time and still use all the kind of the free tools. Cause I had basically a free podcasting host, a free website, you know, like platform, but they're all not hosted by me, you know, under, not under my control in any way. And I thought, well, we could just sort of continue on and be okay. And so I was trying to raise 30,000 and that's when Sam, who was my intern and he was living in Baltimore and he's like, what if I came out there? Mm-hmm. And, um, and you could pay me a thousand bucks a month and I could work one or two days a week and, you know, let's try to do that. And so that's when I changed it to, to raising that extra 12 grand was to pay him. But as he was traveling across the country, I kept on hitting these stretch goals and I would add one more day to his <laughs> schedule and another day and another day until he was full time with me here. And then also my assistant on, on PRX remix. And it changed the whole nature of the show. Uh, you were also able to – you had a target of how many episodes you wanted to do and you were able to boost – Yeah. I mean you had all these different things, right? You, you were able to boost the episodes. You are able to get Sam. and with, I mean, with Sam, you are able to do more episodes. You are able to pay producers you know, better. Right. I know that you're, pay, you're talking about paying uh, musicians now I think, right? That's part of the – Well, I mean I don't – it's it's for the radio work, we're kind of allowed to use music differently yeah, yeah. than, but than podcasts. Can... So, the, so you don't really have to do it that sense. But the videos mm-hmm. have certain rules that are really strict. Right. So like in the first Kickstarter video, I you know wrote Chad Clark of Beauty Pill and I said, listen, I can't pay you much. And I can't even pay you now, (laughs) but if we hit our goal, I'll pay you a little something for the license fee. And he was totally cool with it. And after we did so well, I was able to double the thing, you know, the modest (laughs) thing that I was going to pay him and things like that, like that, uh, as I'm entering these other realms, the rules of radio aren't, don't apply as as much. And so like this next, next next time I do a video and I'm, I'm doing a video episode now and, and things like that, I'm able just to write people and say, Hey, here's a license fee. Mm-hmm. Can we do this? You know, and it's it's so different, you know, and and it makes me feel better and it's still uh they're still doing me a favor. It's still not worth it. Like so my my next video is using a song from this band I love called La Savi Fav. And they're this great band and the only other time I've heard this song being licensed as the it was the credit music of a True Blood episode. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to go and out so, and get sync fees now, which we've discussed in other episodes, synchronization exactly. fees, right? And so it's clearly, you know, they're doing this because Tim has written me and told me he loved the show. And that's why it's happening. But at, at least I can go to him and say, I can pay you this much. Right. 
as just it, the the literal term of honorarium. You know, like it's just like this is meant to honor the fact that you what you do has value, and I know I can't provide full value, but I always write people with this idea that you are supposed to be defending the value of your work because plenty of people are telling you that it's valueless in their actions and their deeds, you know? And so I completely understand when anyone would say no to me, but I'm trying to build up this thing so that, you know, I can pay everyone what they're doing. And I, I take real pride in the fact that even when I was broke, I still paid close to parity of NPR, you know, like, I would just, I would get a certain budget for the show and the reporter would just get all of it. And, um, and I would just, (laughs) my work would be free. And so now that has changed and we can all make money and we're trying to raise the, the ceiling of it. It's still harder because the show is different now because it's still like, as opposed to a lot of things where you turn in a work and it's, um, it's done. They all go through a strong editorial and, you know, finishing process that I have to do that we have to sort of figure out in the calculus of things. It's a little bit different. Like nobody turns in a finished piece to me. They finish, they, they, they turn in like bits and pieces of things and we assemble it, you know? So, uh, so it's still a matter of figuring that stuff out, but I love the fact that I have the ability because of the generosity of the listeners to figure that stuff out, you know, to make sure to start to make things more, more even, you know, and, and try to get every, everybody what they, Deserve. Well, I remember when we talked around after the Kickstarter was over and you achieved this, you know, it's almost over $170,000. And it was, was looking yeah. at the thing, 5,661 backers. And uh, and even then, uh, you had a, some nice side benefits that emerged from the Kickstarter because since you were the first show to sort of put your neck on the line like this, that people knew that had – it was in people's consciousness that the show existed, You know, not at, say, a prairie home level. But it was – it's not just like a local show. People knew what the show was and you had right. a lot of really fervent uh, fans. So not only did you raise the money and we're now – we'll talk about I guess the, what this last year has been like now that you've done season three with it. But I recall you talking about how it affected the show short term is that it suddenly it boosted the profile. So – the number of downloads, the number of people who are now talking it up to their friends to get them to be part of Kickstarter, that changed everything too, didn't it, at that inflection point? Oh, absolutely. I, To me, when I planned the Kickstarter, the Kickstarter was a tool to achieve fundraising. I had no idea that the Kickstarter itself would be a story. Mm-hmm. I, I just – I didn't conceive of myself as being – in the vanguard of this, I'd seen plenty of Kickstarters before, <laughs> you know, like it really didn't strike me as all that different. And there were a couple that were even radio shows that, that, um, achieved their goal, like destination DIY and radio ambulante. And they had done this and they were public radio shows and done it. But there was a sense that m- mine was a little different because of its, you know, because of its quadrupling the amount and it doing it, it you know, it raised its money in 24 hours, which, floored me. I mean, I had no idea that such a thing would happen. And then people started to, it was like one of these things where, you know, like it doing well, people wanted to be part of it doing well. Right. Once you achieved the goal. It was everyone's success. It it really was like, you know, they were loyal. They were paying way over the premium of what you would pay for this type of thing. Like if you were to put a dollar amount on an episode you know 
you know, people wouldn't pay $250 a year for that, right. you know, much less the, <laughs> you know, the occasional $10,000 a year for that. It's not, that's not the value of it. it it's different. And people were wrapped up, um, I think, in this notion that we were creating a different model for for public media and for podcasts. And I'm glad everyone took it that way. I mean, I, I mean like, to, that's how it felt to me. And I think that there's a way that you could interpret the success of the show in a, in a myth of scarcity mindset and go like, well, you're just taking it away from the other independent producers who are now not making money. But I, I haven't seen that. Like the following Kickstarters of the people I know, they did well. You know, they achieved their goals. They're doing great. And it did provide a model. That's what I was really hoping to do. It's a pervasive myth that Kickstarter is uh, – there's one pie of one size and we're taking bigger pieces away. And I talked to Yancey Strickler of Kickstarter a few episodes ago about this because they hear it all the time, of course. It's like you're, you know the million-dollar or the $5 million movie uh, Kickstarter, that's going to suck money out of independent films. And they're like, no, we actually have the stats. It shows people who come in for Veronica Mars then go on and back other independent films. It makes the pie bigger. But there's it a does. perception of scarcity because most people are used to a scarcity model in which people are only paying their money into mainstream things and it moves from one mainstream pile to another. It's it's totally true. I feel like, I mean, if, if it's just the function of me, you know, like just me as a person, I support more things than I ever have before. Mainly it's because I actually have some money <laughs> now, <laughs> but, and I have at least some ability to do that. No sleep, but, it, but more money. That's But more money, but a little bit. Cool. You know, it's like I can spare the 20 bucks for that album right. that I would normally pay 10 for. You know, like, it's just like, I have that ability and there's a real, you know, like, I don't think in a macroeconomic sense, trickle down economics works at all, but I think in the micro sense, it actually quite, it does, you know, for middle-class people, mm-hmm. it tends to work. And so, so I've seen for me, just the existence of Kickstarter and the like, uh, just create more opportunity for everybody. I do not in any way subscribe to the notion that somebody like Zach Braff or Veronica Mars takes away money from me. Not, not at all. I I don't even see the point of making that type of argument. I'm okay if it takes money away from transformers. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, there's this idea, the big head, long tail thing. It's like, I, um, there's there's some great parts of mass culture, but it doesn't bug me if Roman Mars gets uh, $50 that would have gone to a major movie franchise and mostly wound up in the hand, you know, pockets of executives and actors and, and shareholders and has no broader effect on cultural life. Like that's okay if it redistributes yeah. and it doesn't take – you know, because I think the issue is this is a class warfare. You're picking the pocket of uh, you know some other – podcast or radio show but you're not you're if you're picking anyone's pocket which is debatable anyway you're taking money that people might have put into a mass mainstream entertainment medium and said oh this is something that's more personal i'm involved with and put it there if that's what's happening but it's not coming from a different podcast i i I honestly don't believe that it's even coming from the mainstream i think that there's just people are understanding the economics of the situation and we've gotten a fair amount for free and we've been really lucky you know, it's been a great time for us all, but there is a joy that is not just altruism in supporting the things that you care about. I, I just, I know it personally. I, I'm glad other people feel it for me, but it's more about just like, I, you go to the show 
and you buy the opening band seven inch. That's just that is just the rule <laughs> yeah. of things. And it's not because you're doing it for them. You're you're doing it as much for you. And so I understand that as a consumer. I'm a you know rabid consumer of things and I love to support the things I can. And uh, if I can't support them financially in the past, you know, I just support them by telling everyone I know about them. And so I understand it. I still like find it weird that people feel that way about me <laughs> personally, <laughs> but like, so I get it, you know, like, I, but, but I understand it from, from the perspective in a, in a certain way. Well, you're at the end of season three, right? We're yeah. here and, uh, and you had a really interesting kind of Kickstarter because there were sort of two different things about it. And as we talk about your next Kickstarter, let's do the foreshadowing mm-hmm. as we get towards the end of this here. The, uh, the thing that's interesting for Kickstarter, of course, is usually people have a project and the premiums are sometimes the results of that project and sometimes they're unrelated things and sometimes some combination. You had this funny thing, which is the product was something anyone could get for free. The thing that was the result mm-hmm. was you didn't need to pay for it at all, right? Anyone could go to your site and listen to it for free. So that's a funny thing to start with. So people are supporting something that enables everyone to get a benefit from it. All the hundreds of thousands of listeners benefit from 5,600 people contributing. Right. There's a couple of related things. One is you had a huge variety of premiums that I know caused you no end of oh. hardship. Thank you for the two T-shirts. I wear them all the time. I get great compliments on them. <laughs> oh, uh, but you. there was the there was the premium issue, and then there was the you know what do you measure by which this is done? And we've actually fulfilled it issue, which is sort of the end of the season. So maybe talk about the premium thing first, because I remember I've seen the updates and I know you were sending pencils and notebooks and tapes and other things. How'd that work out for you? Oh, it was so hard. (laughs) It was so hard. I mean, uh, but the whole time, I I mean, I have to admit, I'm not, again, I feel like I've been thrust into being Pollyannish because the people who support me are so awesome. But I never felt like it always felt like a burden I was willing to bear because people were so great to me, right. you know? And so becoming, you know, being a radio producer and then spinning up to being a retail operation in a few months was something <laughs> I was so unprepared for. I, I mean, I was just unprepared for the idea that you can just, you can't just show up at the post office <laughs> with a thousand packages. They tell you to go away, you know? <laughs> And you have to go to post office boxes around the city and put one in at a time. Yeah, it, it, I, I actually did that. I would take sets of them and to avoid the withering glares of people, I would go to four – I'd have four post oh offices in my route. And it would take days. And and, the, and what I didn't know is that when planning such a thing, if you start on your own, you kind of have to finish it on your own. Because the way that other people, fulfillment services take it is they take your database and they take all your raw materials and they put it all together and right. they ship it out. If you've already put the T-shirt in the envelope, it totally screws them yeah, up. No one's they gonna can't buy. operate. <laughs> You know, they, there's no way to make their system work for you. And so once we started and we were like, hey, let's just do half the work ourselves and maybe we'll save some of the money and all this sort of stuff. And then it was like, oh, it was such a mistake. So there's all these things about it that are really, really hard. And you have to really think about this stuff at a time. And I learned that lesson. And But part of me was like I wanted to do some aspect of it because, you know, like I'm this punk DIY 
you know, grown up, I grew up in that idea. You know, these are the things I value. And I wanted to pack the envelopes. It was important to me because people gave me their money. And there was something about that that was really, really psychologically important to me. It is no longer psychologically important to me <laughs> to pack the envelopes. <laughs> You've contributed all the paper cuts you need to to your listening audience. I mean, I adore them, but my effort is much better spent on the show. Well, or, you know, I just I have to bring that up because every I think every Kickstarter, no, I should say, there's a few exceptions where people do like I'm doing four things. You can get a book, you can get a download, you get a postcard. And maybe I'll draw on it and I'm done, right? And then there's others where you're, you don't know what it's going to be like the first time and you offer – I just talked not long ago to the folks doing the Under the Smogberries documentary about uh, – Smogberry Tree documentary about Dr. Demento. And mm-hmm. uh, they have like 100,000 premiums and I was like, was that a good idea? And they're like, oh, yeah, because people kept upgrading. They go, oh, I want the kazoo and the collection and this and they figured out the matrix. They went into it knowing it was going to be a crazy – fulfillment thing and they planned for it even though they'd never done this before they felt it was important and it did bring them up there's it was a success in the sense that people wanted unique memorabilia that was otherwise unavailable in your case you were trying to give people unique rewards that associated them with the show but weren't as critical to their appreciation of the show necessarily or that you touched every envelope (laughs) i mean i mean i think that i mean they were mass-produced goods except for like uh, one exception but i have to tell you i mean I created things I liked and I thought like if I were a listener to this show, what would I want? Right. And so it was really fun to tout them. It was really fun to commission the pieces and work on them. I spent months on the premiums. And so it was part of the joy of the Kickstarter for me. So and, – and a lot of it was trying to figure out – the pricing was about figuring out this balance of are we a public radio show or are we offering things for commercial right, sale? Right. And the Kickstarter impulse, the Kickstarter is set up to be more about retail sales, like pre-sale of material. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, but the radio, the, the, you know, the public radio version of that is to have a t-shirt and have it cost you an $80 pledge. You know? right, right. And so I kind of had to split the difference because I, I couldn't afford to do it the way the $30 t-shirt. It's just, it's, I'm, I would have, Made nothing right. if I did it that way. And so I had to figure that part out. And I'll probably, you know, do the same thing for the next one. Oh yeah. So we should now we've now we've been hinting we little bits and pieces. This is the the big reveal. Although I think by the time this podcast airs, it should be I believe the announcement will have been made is the plan. Right. So you've completed so you got all the stuff out. Mm-hmm. You've completed the season. You you did what you set out to do. You actually you did a full season. The money made it possible. Sam's still working there. You've produced all this. Yeah. Uh a year ago or more, we talked, and I said, "Are you going to do this again?" Because it was unclear. Like, does this become a sustainable? Well, you have sponsors. I mean, there's underwriters. There's other stuff that's in the mix with this money. Right. But you know, is this a sustainable thing, or is this a thing that is the kickstart? It pushes you off the ground and says, "Now I can go out and just do underwriting and let people do donate or whatever." But mm-hmm. here we are a year later, and you're on the verge of a new announcement. Yeah, so I'm I'm going to do another Kickstarter, and I absolutely was telling the truth when I said I would never do another one again. And I think it's kind of that, (laughs) I think it's that psychological effect that of not remembering the pain of childbirth. That's similar. Yeah. This is, this is why you have two kids and I have two kids. Our wives would never have, uh, my wife made me promise after her first child to not remind her. And when she was (laughs) pregnant with our second child, she said, why didn't you tell me? I said, you made me swear. She said, next time this is, you know, 
This is true. Well, I I had twins, so my my <laughs> wife remembered it all too well, there we go, that's, and that's we right. never had another that's one. Right. But the um, I I think the thing was was I couldn't figure out how to forward the plot. To me, I believe in the idea of Kickstarter as a project and not an ongoing thing. And to me, I was just like, well, I feel like I'm I made the money I did for two reasons. One was people gave me an outsized proportion saying, well, this is your shot. You know, like here's go make the show that we believe in and you want to make. And then a little bit of that extra money was like the back pay of right. the two years before. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that all made sense to me and, and everything like that. I always knew, and there is no public radio show that could exist without some kind of listener support. The, the the models for underwriting and stuff they're they're improving they're pretty good but they the type of production we do it would never be enough it needs to be um you need a diversified portfolio for it to survive so i knew i was going to have to do t- some type of listener support i thought it might be more of a voluntary subscription type of thing but then i i got this idea that Season four would actually be a forwarding of the idea, mm. which would be, what if we could go weekly? What if I could get that oh. investment ahead ahead of time yeah. to hire staff? And staff is extremely expensive. I mean, it's just not – and the only thing I would fix about Kickstarter is like absolutely yes, I got a great amount of money from people. But – that $170,000 is not my salary. Right, you know? right, right. <laughs> you know, it, it, it funds a whole show. And, it, and you know, a, a non, you know, it's, we, if you took that, that would barely pay your highest, your, your senior level producer at NPR in right. terms of benefits and salary and everything, you know. And that we run the whole show on that. And I've even saved, you know, we've saved the money. Like, we're not out of the money. But this... Uh, infusion from people and this kind of vote of confidence is this idea of yes we want you to hire in this case i'm going to hire um sean cole who's this brilliant reporter who i adore to produce monthly episodes for us that's great and have our first kind of east coast regular contributor and some production staff i'm we're starting a paid internship which i'm hoping will turn into a production coordinator type of position and put out the show weekly because I think that with that support, with that infusion of producing more content so that we can sell more underwriting, you know, all these types of things will make a sustainable business. So right now you're – did you produce – was it 40 episodes in season three roughly? Yeah, well, it will be at the end. I mean it, 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 we're, we're just – we released uh, 90 – we're in the early 90s now. Mm-hmm. Um, by the, but I need to fundraise a little bit ahead of the end of the, you right. know, the, end of the <laughs> season. <right. laughs> So, so there'll be uh, ten more in this season, culminating what, uh, with what we hope will be the um, a video episode, and then start from one hundred and one and go weekly. And it's going to be a little more than a year to get the forty out. But I, but I really feel like the, the great pride I have. I'm mean, like the the bands I love the most are the ones where their last album was their best album. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's there's a lot of bands where the first album is great and you never really care about the rest of them as much as you care about that first one. But the bands that are like the ones that transcend everything are the Fugazis of the world where they're like each album was 
better in its own way. You still have your favorites and your favorite songs here and there, but they kept growing. And so to me, what I'm really proud of is season three, it was just better than the other ones. Like the show got better. Like it was not, it didn't suffer from greater resources. It did better with greater resources. This is the thing that I find is that the more time I have to work on the same amount of material, the richer it becomes if I can work with, say, uh, you know, in a story with the, with the reporter, that there's more time to layer it. That you get one layer, even a, you know, some of the great reporters will turn in something that's fully layered and even then you want to do something. But that you say, you know, there's something here and if you don't have the time, you run that first thing and you're happy with it. But if you have the time, you go back and you're whipping that in. You're folding, folding, folding. Yeah. Does time have that effect for radio production too that you have more luxury to make the story deeper? Sure. And and in a way, you know, like we have to figure out what that balance is going to be because we're going to have to recreate <laughs> – because we're going to have to turn things out in a different clip. Right. You know? You'll have to have a lot more in progress at the same time than you do now. But I feel like, you know, there's a reason why that production schedule works for people. It, the demand is out there and I just want to try it. It's the expectation though too is that I like a weekly show because I know every week I don't know when your show's coming out. And right. at some no, level it bothers Neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's a spectatorship position right there. Is is I'm not mad at you when it's not out every week, but I'm like, I have time to listen to something. Oh shoot, I've and listened it, to all the episodes that are out. Yeah. If it's weekly, I'm never gonna get caught up, you know, until I have like flights or things, and I'm gonna be delighted by that. Yeah, I, I think I, I've been doing radio long enough or that I know that not everyone wants to listen to you. All the time, <laughs> as much as you think that they want to. But binge listening is a huge thing. Like binge watching on Netflix. It's a, I have yeah. people who've listened to this entire show. They'll say, I went back and I listened to the whole thing. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay, well, thank you. That's <laughs> awesome. But I don't have that much time in my life and I'm impressed when people can do it. There are people who discover 99% Invisible and I will see them tweet at you or you'll reply like, oh yeah. my gosh, thanks. And they've gone back and they will listen to the oeuvre, right? They've gone and yeah. and it's 40 hours or no, probably at this point I mean, it's 50, it, it, 60 hours and they'll have gone back no, and it, it all. For, for 99% Invisible, I think that actually the commitment is more like about 20 hours. Is that, oh, wait, because you have episodes. Because there's short anywhere. episodes. It gets bigger. Especially the early ones. Yeah, but it's still, it's still that idea people want. They'll they can catch up with you and find you. Yeah. And, and, and I make them all available for that reason. And, uh, and I've never treated the production like a radio production where I put out repeats to fill things out and we're going to have to figure out ways to to do it. You know, like, uh, updates might change, you know, like might be a part of things more, you know, like I've been experimenting with these more of these audio essays, you know, that would are more about, uh, these stories that are from history, design history that don't have a, um, an interviewee, you know, mm-hmm. they're more of a written piece. And so we're trying different things out to sort of explore what, what it would be like to put out a, a weekly show. And so far I've gotten the feeling that the audience has been very receptive to all of these variations on the theme. And, and also, you know, like Sean Cole, he's like the greatest reporter, you know, like he did this piece for us about the, um, this Frank O'Hara, Walt Whitman fence in Battery Park in oh, in New York. Yeah, that was wonderful. And it was like it was a lot of people's favorite episode. Yeah, because it was so. It's that it's the coincidences, the things that. And he didn't try to make more of the coincidences that existed, but boy, was that hilarious yeah. and fascinating. And and he's just he's really great. Like everything he does is is great to me. And so so I'm happy to add his voice to it and, and things like that. So we're, we're going to figure it out. And I think I'm excited about that. I'm excited about what it would mean 
with the support of everyone to staff up and go pro, like really go pro. Well, let me ask the question. I, I know we're recording this in the magic of radio and podcasting. Mm-hmm. We're recording this ahead of when this is being announced, but uh, what's the, uh, what kind of money do you need to raise to make this happen? Well, I know this is really, I've, I've been going back and forth on this. When I run the numbers and try to pay for everything, um, I'm trying to raise 150000 that seems, but uh, now we should talk about listenership though too, because when you before the Kickstarter, what was your you hundred it was you had hundreds of thousands of downloads a month before the Kickstarter? Yeah, is that right? I would say it would probably be at that time, you know, maybe two fifty to three hundred thousand a month. But then that's and, changed significantly after yeah, the Kickstarter. And so, like our last month was our biggest ever, and it was eight hundred and thirty thousand oh, downloads. So wait, so it's not now. I mean, I realize there's the going to the well thing. Is like there's the there's the joke about the cons and, and marks, right? Is like you already tapped me, you can come back to me, and I'm probably going to give money to you again because <laughs> you also you achieved the goal. You did the thing you set out to do, and I'm I'm yeah. already an easy mark. So you have all the people who supported the first Kickstarter. Kickstarter lets you email all those people and say update. We're doing another Kickstarter. Here's the link. So some – you already have easy access to people who wanted to support the show. But oh, then, really? Can you do that? Oh, yeah. That. Oh, hey, there's a tip. As one of your updates, you know, you just send an update and it will go to oh, everybody. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Oh, I've totally – I didn't even think well, about that. Well, excellent. There you go. I'll take 10%. <laughs> you. You're welcome. And uh, <laughs> Oh, I've been thinking about this whenever I do the Kickstarter thing is, is you have to link – you chain them one to the next. But yeah. but then with having like you know three to four times the number of listeners, you had 170 grand. Yeah, it was a good story. People came out of the woodwork to support it. People wanted to support a good story. But you did it. You fulfilled it. And now your story is we went to the well once. We have an enormously more resource or you know listeners. We have a plan for how to make this thing that we made better with the money you gave us mm-hmm. even better and more like what you want. And you didn't tap you know 500,000 of the monthly listeners that – last time around we weren't even aware of this at that time right i i think that there's a good when you when you slice it up like that the increase in the 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 reach of the show the fact that a good amount of people will want to give again i i really don't i'm never gonna harp on like the the people like you who who did donate a significant amount of money like to me I would love it if you donated again, but I kind of feel like you're off the hook. Right. There's plenty of people that didn't who would want to. I'm honored that you would want to. But it's sort of like I I feel torn about the people that have already donated. If I can provide value to them and they think that, oh, yeah, a weekly <laughs> would be great, and then that's one thing. But it's sort of – so like I'm trying to reach a lot of people and I'm trying to balance the message such that it doesn't feel greedy I haven't burned through all the money that you guys have spotted me. You know, like, you know, I'm trying to get ahead of this and grow. But that's, I think that's great message though, which is that we actually didn't, you know, we, we managed to pull all this off and we didn't bankrupt ourselves. We fulfilled everything. <laughs> we got it done and we're in a position of strength to go forward. It's just, too. it's a subtler message. That's it, all. It is. But people like success. I mean, you don't have to be unsuccessful. Like, you don't have to be a failure to get people to give you money, but it's the, it's the, the fact that you pulled it off is part of the message of why people should trust you again. And yeah, you know, I see this at every time I'm involved with any kind of this you know, sort of crowdfunding fundraising, it's you get people who have pent up demand. They've been wanting to do something for you for years. They give a big pledge. The next year they come in, but they're a $15 backer or $25 backer right, instead of a hundred right. or a thousand or whatever. They'll come back again and they'll rain make for other people. This is a great show. You should go listen to the first three seasons of it. And one of their friends might then come in at the 500 or thousand dollar thing because they're so, they feel like they're paying you back as well. Yeah. I, I, I hope so I think that the show is valuable. I think that it 
it's formed a community and I even think that it has, it's like informed a lot of people's way of thinking in, in the way that they view the world. And, uh, and it's uh, a good show. Like I would support the show that I have, which makes me feel comfortable (laughs) asking for it. Oh, that's great. So I'm, I'm really proud of it. For years I created things where I thought when people told me that they liked it, that they were mainly being nice. (laughs) And, and, And this time I kind of, I believe like, yeah, I think the show, like, not everyone is a home run, but the show is good. Like, I'm proud of the show. Now, you know how to tell the difference. You're in radio. If someone tells you, like, like the show, and then they tell you about an episode, you know they're really a listener. If they tell you, like, yeah. the show, and they don't name anything specific, right, they're being right, polite. Right. The most common thing that's actually what I hear a lot of is, like, is that I just heard, I was just traveling recently, and somebody said, and two people, maybe maybe three, they say, I love the show. It's It's one of my favorite podcasts. Well, you know, Radio Lab and This American Life, they're like, like they're like my favorite favorite. <laughs> but you're like really, you're like, you're almost up there. Everyone has to, they're, they're pathologically honest about these things. Oh my gosh. Which, which I think is very sweet. Well, the only thing I want you to pay for though is I want you to get a domain name that's easier to spell out on the air because it's not numeral nine, numeral nine, word percentage, Percent. word invisible well, dot I did. O-R-G. I my my web designers they thought the exact same thing and so you can actually punch in 99pi.org um and it works well that's just fine. I like the short thing Roman yeah. I am looking so forward to watching this thing in real time by the time we re- by the time this airs it's possible that you will be well on your way to the goal you set out based on last year's experience and the excitement about about where you are this year yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I, this is this is the Schrodinger's cat podcast. We I've often talked to people just before something significant. It's like we we occasionally <laughs> recorded two different versions. Of, Isn't that that's great? It was a huge. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That didn't <laughs> I know this. I know this. Well, we hope we want to use <laughs> version number two. Exactly. Well, thanks for coming on uh, the podcast and talking about this. And uh, and I'll refer to people in the show notes. They have all all the links to this. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having. You can now support the production of this podcast directly by becoming a patron at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Support us at a level of $1 or more per podcast. At higher levels of support, you get our on-air thanks and more. We'll be adding more patronage benefits over time. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, that's P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. We're also a happy part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.